It all started in the beginning of December. I played disc golf. So when I went out there this one morning, before the hour was up, I started getting chills all of a sudden. And I just didn't really feel right. It felt like I was getting sick for some reason. So I walked home. But when I got home, all of a sudden, just headaches started, uh, just started coming on me. I mean, real bad headaches to the point where it's like I was actually crying and screaming because that's how bad it was. I, I didn't know what it was. I was like, I've never gotten headaches like that. So I, I started getting chills that night and the headaches continued. I really didn't get any sleep. And that continued for three days. My aunt said, you got to go to emergency. So I went to a neighborhood satellite emergency place and they really didn't know what was going on. So they just pretty much sent me home with some like headache pills and that didn't really work. So it went on for like another week. So I was like, okay, I got to go back to emergency. So uh, once I went to the second emergency satellite place, they told me the same thing. It's like, they didn't know what it was. It's go home and drink lots of fluids and, and, you know, it'll probably just go away in a few days. And well, it never really went away. So the third week of December is when I finally said, I got to go to a real emergency. I walked into UC Davis and I told them about the headaches two weeks ago and it's still going on. So they thought that I might've had a virus of some sort because it was during flu season, but they couldn't really put a finger on it. So they just said, okay, let's take a blood test. They got me an IV that day. They said, okay, we'll just do your fluids. And, and all of a sudden I get a call three days later from UC Davis saying that I had to come in. They wanted to talk to me. And uh, that really scared me because I thought something was really wrong now because they don't just call you back for nothing. Then I told my father and I was like, I'm scared. So he came in and picked me up and we came to UC Davis and that's when they told me that I was HIV positive. And that's uh, that's when everything changed. I'm 54 years old, so I kind of grew up in that 80s mentality like, oh, I got HIV, I'm going to die like in the next couple of years. It's like, this is all bad. I want to kill myself. This doctor that uh, at UC Davis, I mean, he's been around for a while. He said, man, it's different now. It's, you know, you don't have to take so many medications. And he said the research is, is much better than, than back in the 80s when it was kind of, you know, when it was kind of new. So that made me feel better. And then um, you guys hooked me up with the One Community Health Program. It's like I've met like four different people like case managers and the doctors and everybody is well-versed on this virus. And, and I've been learning a lot from them. So now I feel a lot better. You know, my viral level was 293,000. And since I've been taking the medication, that was probably like a month and a half ago, it's down to 103, which is like a big drop. I'm almost undetectable. So I feel a lot better about this situation that I'm in. I quit smoking and drinking just to not poison my body because I already got, you know, something I got to deal with. So I I just try to do the right thing right now. And and One Community Health is a real cool place. And they're just very informative and supportive. So, yeah, it's a good good program. This is Ian Pulse with your hosts, Sarah Medeiros and Julia Magana. This is Hope. 
Welcome back to EMPulse. We are excited to have a break from our coronavirus panicked emergency department to talk to you about another virus that has plagued us since the 80s, HIV. Well, actually, we're going to talk about HIV, hep C, and syphilis. And these are not getting as much press as coronavirus these days, but they also have important public health implications. You know, Sarah, in emergency medicine, we typically talk about these diseases in the context of like a differential diagnosis or personal protective equipment, right? True, but another aspect of the conversation has been screening, as in universal screening or targeted screening in the ED. Now, you may ask yourself, why? Don't I have enough to do? And those are valid questions. But as we talk about this, I want you to remember that the CDC estimated in 2016 that 1.1 million people aged 13 or older had HIV in the United States. This includes an estimated 14% who did not know that they had HIV. If that doesn't sound like a lot of people, keep in mind the story we heard at the beginning here. And we're now going to hear some more about screening in the emergency department from Dr. Larissa May. She's a professor of emergency medicine at UC Davis and has a master's degree in emerging infectious diseases. You may have heard her on other podcasts or speaking at conferences about antibiotic stewardship. But today we're talking about HIV screening in the ED and what our role is. All right, Larissa, tell me, why did you start studying sexually transmitted infection screening in the first place? This goes back a long time. You know, I've gotten most of my inspiration in trying to improve care for patients based on what we see in the emergency department. And before I came to UC Davis, I was practicing uh, at an urban hospital in Washington, D.C., at George Washington University. And we had started one of the first HIV screening programs uh, in the country. And I had trained during a time where we were still seeing patients that were dying of AIDS. So when I was an intern in internal medicine, on the wards where I trained, one out of every three patients essentially had acquired immune deficiency syndrome and was dying from these diseases. Uh, now, there was highly active antiretroviral therapy, which is very effective, that had just started at that time, but not everybody had been screened and tested. And so for these patients, it was too late. And so when we started our screening program, we really had very high prevalence rates, meaning out of Maybe every 100 patients we had test, one of them was positive and didn't know it. And that program was so effective that D.C. essentially lowered that prevalence down to one in a 1,000 and really got the vast majority of patients on treatment. And so I'd seen the tremendous impact of doing the screening in the emergency department, getting these patients linked to care and on treatment. And uh, when we came to UC Davis, we had the opportunity to start something similar funded by the Gilead Foundation. And even though it was not what I was working on primarily at the time, I really thought that our patient population really had a need uh, to have this testing done. There still seemed to be a lot of stigma, and many patients were out of care, didn't have access to primary care doctors, and weren't getting screened. I myself was absolutely shocked at the seroprevalence, the number of patients that we have identified through this program. What about our population um, at UC Davis makes them higher risk? Why did you think that was particularly important here? You know, we don't have a county hospital here in Sacramento County, but essentially UC Davis serves as the safety net for many vulnerable patients who don't have insurance, who may be undocumented. A substantial proportion of our patients come from uh, lower socioeconomic backgrounds, they're homeless, uh, they may have issues with substance abuse. And so these patients are at higher risk for sexually transmitted infections, including HIV and hepatitis. And also because they're not engaging in care uh, and because primary care physicians aren't necessarily testing 
then these patients were getting missed. I think we just happen to have the patient population that really needs this the most. So walk us briefly through the structure of the project. So the idea of this project was to provide opt-out screening for sexually transmitted infections, including HIV, hepatitis uh, C, and syphilis, we added on. And essentially what we do is we leverage the electronic health record to identify patients that meet the testing guidelines. So the CDC recommends testing all patients 13 through 64 for HIV uh, at least once a year. And then, of course, if there's a new exposure, for example, patient presenting with concerns of a sexually transmitted infection, then it would be recommended to be done more frequently. And for hepatitis C, the U.S. Preventive Task Force had recommended screening all adults of a certain age in the demographic cohort uh, that essentially was 1945 to 1965. We actually knew that there was evidence that were there were patients that were falling out of that cohort that are also at risk. And so we implemented uh, testing for all adults that are getting uh, labs in the emergency department. And we have identified a tremendous number of patients outside that age cohort, mainly probably due to drug use. And those patients can potentially be cured of their hepatitis C. The U.S. Preventive Task Force and the CDC made these screening recommendations because testing is the key to prevention, treatment, and care. We know if people who are HIV positive know they are HIV positive, they will modify their behavior and reduce the risk of HIV transmission. And in this era, we can treat HIV. We can bring that viral load down significantly and reduce transmission and complications of HIV significantly. So, Larissa, walk us through, what does this look like on a practical level? So, essentially, what happens is either when a nurse initiates a nurse-driven protocol at triage or when the physician is ordering blood labs on a patient, if they meet these eligibility criteria, so basically most adults, uh, and they're getting blood labs, then there'll be a trigger, an alert, recommending testing with uh, some language around how to do the opt-out screening and then an option to order the test. The test can also be declined, for example, if the patient can't be opted out, meaning, you know, perhaps they're a severe trauma or, you know, they're confused and they can't actually understand what we're telling them. So we can opt that out or if we think the patient's not appropriate for the alert. And then also for STD testing, if a patient is tested for chlamydia and gonorrhea, we automatically have a best practice alert that pops up for syphilis, HIV, and hepatitis C. And opt out means... So opt-out is now the standard of care. So it's what the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention mentioned as what is the best practice for testing patients. And this really should be done uh, universally in in most settings. Essentially, in the past, uh, HIV had a lot of stigma. It still has a bit of stigma. But because of that stigma and concerns about patient privacy and protection, we used to have to do consent of patients to get their permission to do this testing and to do pre-test and post-test counseling. However, ultimately with the HIV AIDS epidemic, the CDC realized that that practice was actually preventing patients from getting screened. And so now the standard practice is to provide some education, but just to notify the patient, like with any other lab, that it's getting done. Patients, of course, also have the option to decline the test if they don't want to have it done. So after those labs are sent, what happens next? Do I get it back in real time on a shift and have to report it or what, what's the next step? 
Well, unfortunately, uh, we're not at the point at our institution where we can do testing in real time. So most of the time, you won't get a result back during the shift, although sometimes it does happen. But what happens is that we get a report on our back end, our program manager, Teslim, she reviews all the results and uh, notifies the patients with the positive results. Um, So what happens for HIV is we send an antibody screen, and then if that comes back positive, ultimately, um, there's sometimes some confirmatory steps, then we will actually partner with an HIV counselor and bring the patient back to the emergency department and do the in-person notification education and linkage or relinkage to care directly during that that visit. If it's for hepatitis C, there's a screen for the antibody and then a certain percentage of patients, like about 10%, are positive for the antibody, but only about half of them have active disease, meaning that they have active virus in their blood. So we check for that with the hepatitis C viral load, and we will notify those patients as well, and we will link them to care over the phone. And who pays for this? Is this something that the the insurance is billed, or is our hospital covering this? It used to be many years ago that programs would pay for the testing. However, because this has become more standard in many settings, the program does not pay for the testing unless the patient does not have insurance. Um, Otherwise, it's billed to the patient's insurance. Okay, and tell us about some of the key results you guys have found. You've been doing this for over a year now? Yeah, so we've been doing this uh, since November of 2018, so a little over a year. And in our one year, we really have been absolutely astounded at the number of patients that have been eligible for screening and whom we've identified. So we've screened over 14,000 patients for HIV, and we've screened over 16,000 patients for hepatitis C virus. And we've also screened about 880 patients for syphilis. Um, remember, we, we only do that when patients are presenting for STD testing. And many patients are actually now coming in and asking for these tests. Over the last year, we've identified 107 positive HIV patients. And 24 of them had no idea that they had HIV. And in fact, some of them were actually in primary care and just hadn't been tested. One uh, gentleman had been diagnosed with syphilis within the past year and um, had not been tested for HIV, and he was a new seroconversion. And we also had a young gentleman who had a prior history of cancer and hadn't been in care, but came in with shingles, and we normally wouldn't test patients for HIV, but he uh, probably got shingles or reactivation of the chickenpox virus because he was uh, newly HIV positive. So both uh, those patients would not have been identified through traditional screening mechanisms, and we were able to link them to care. Of the uh, other patients, about half of them who we diagnosed with HIV already have a known history of HIV and are in treatment. About 24 of them were known to be HIV positive by the county but they were not in care, and we were able to link most of those patients back to care and back into treatment. So the important thing about these screening programs is this is one of the few things that we can actually do where we're not just impacting the health of the patient. The idea here is that we can screen patients, get them into treatment, and actually reduce transmission of these diseases in the community. And really the goal for hepatitis C is to treat all active hepatitis C patients cure them of their disease so that there's no longer any transmission. HIV is no longer the death sentence as it was, and a patient that's on a highly active antiretroviral therapy is not likely to transmit the disease to others. So just getting people into treatment can have a tremendous impact on other patients uh, that are vulnerable in the population. Were these the kinds of numbers you were expecting? So no, we were not expecting these numbers. We had a seroprevalence rate of up to 1%. 
And that's really high. So that means one out of every 100 patients that we are drawing labs on and testing for HIV turns out to be positive for HIV, half of whom didn't know it. What's the national prevalence? The national prevalence varies. So um, places that have been doing screening for a while, it may be closer to 0.1%. And they recommend stopping universal screening when we get to that 0.1%. There are parts of the country that really haven't had much testing, for example, rural areas in the southern states, and we are rivaling those numbers. So really, really shocking. You know, I think because we're so close to San Francisco, everybody thinks, oh, all these patients have been screened. But really, we're in a very different population, given that we, you know, have the rural urban mix. And I think we just have a lot of people because of our epidemic of methamphetamine use and heroin use that just haven't been screened, and and a tremendous amount of stigma and, and need for education. I knew that our patient population was vulnerable and that this would be a big service for the community. I did not realize how great of a need it was. Okay, let's just take a moment here. So Larissa said that 0.7%, or 70 in 1,000, of those patients screened were HIV positive. Of those who tested positive, about half were a new diagnosis or known diagnosis but not receiving care. This suggests that in our population, approximately 33 in 1,000 people screened were new diagnoses or were out of treatment. Remember that Larissa said when she was working in Washington, D.C., that they initially were finding 1 in 100 patients who were positive, and after testing, this dropped to 1 in 1,000. So testing can actually make a big difference. Our incidence of new diagnosis of 0.16% compares to 0.1% to 0.4% new diagnosis in places from Paris to multi-centers across the United States. We are right where everyone else is. We also screened for hepatitis C and found an even higher percent of positive patients. Of the 16,000-plus patients screened, 9% tested hep C antibody positive, and about half of those had active disease, of which a majority were a new diagnosis or were not in care. And this is a disease that now can be treated and even cured. It's amazing. Larissa, what did you guys find for syphilis? In our syphilis screening programs, we're only testing patients that are presenting with STDs. We're finding rates of 8.2%. If a patient has a positive chlamydia or gonorrhea test, they have a 30% chance of having syphilis. Um, and syphilis is sort of a disease that doesn't really have any symptoms in the early stages. And so, uh, you know, these patients can be identified. And California has one of the highest rates of congenital syphilis. So that's where the infection is transmitted to the unborn child. And this is totally preventable with screening. And so we're playing the small part. So there's a huge need in California for this. Geez, that is so huge. You know, you mentioned that you got the majority of them linked into care. This feels like a really high-risk population for follow-up and easily lost to follow-up. What happened with those that were lost to follow-up, and what do you do, and what is your moral responsibility when you have somebody that's diagnosed and then lost to follow-up? So I'll talk about HIV because it obviously has the most serious long-standing implications. The patients that have been out of care, some of them have been tested in other parts of California, for example. And so there's a database that the state of California maintains of all these patients because HIV is a reportable disease. And so some of these patients were tested and known to be positive a while back, but either because of stigma or there are other issues that are priorities compared to you know their health. A lot of these patients um, are not in treatment, but they also don't notify 
us as healthcare providers. So we don't actually know they have this history. And there's a lot of shame and stigma and, again, access to care issues. But what we do is we partner with the county. If we can't find a patient or we can't contact them, then we reach out to the county. And a lot of times the county can do the legwork of trying to find the patient documenting whether this is a new infection, trying to reach the patient. Really, it's great because that is statewide, at least for for HIV. We also have a very important partnership with our community, with the Street Medicine Program. And that program helps to identify patients that may be homeless and try to um, track these patients to actually notify them, even though we may not be able to reach them via traditional methods. And so we do we do our best to track patients and to notify them. Um, there are, of course, always a handful that, that will be missed. Yeah, I can see where downstream this is going to be so, so important, bigger picture. But a lot of emergency departments are kind of having to look at the day-to-day. And you mentioned that the actual labs are free, but you have a whole program here, right, of like tracking people down, counseling them. You have Taslim. (laughs) And then you have some time also. That is not cheap. Um, Is this something that you recommend every emergency department does? Or is this something that we should just put money into as a state of California? What's your thought on that? I think this is a tremendous need, obviously. You know, in order to do this correctly, you really do want to provide that linkage to care piece. And I don't think it's realistic to expect emergency physicians to you know, order these tests routinely and then follow up on all the results. And, you know, trying to get patients into primary care is really a big challenge and lots of time spent on phone calls and answering questions and education. The goal of these programs, per the CDC and others, was for them to become sustainable. Unfortunately, our systems are not very well set up in emergency medicine to do public health screening. I really think this may be a role for the counties to continue some of this, at least to help provide some of the linkage to care aspects of it. I think it's not realistic at this point with these large numbers of patients that we're identifying to be able to do this without having an extra person. And so who should it be? There are not always financial incentives for this that are well aligned. The federally qualified health centers do have some incentives to screen and identify these patients. So it may be that as we get more patients into primary care, we can move some of this work there. But I still think there's going to be this tremendously vulnerable population with very high rates that we're only going to be able to identify in the emergency department. So it may be that EDs with very high prevalence rates, you know, will have to partner with their counties or other health departments, private foundations to try to continue some of this work until we've screened and and treated a majority of patients. If someone wanted to start a program like this in their emergency department, what would they need to do? So I think the most important thing that we did is to have this best practice alert through our EMR. So we're not relying on the clinicians to remember to screen patients. Um, I think Buy-in is really important from nurses and physicians. Notification of patients, um, you know, can be relatively simple. However, you may need to have brochures or some signage in the waiting rooms. I really do think that the biggest challenge that we have is finding a, a navigator that can link patients to care. Now, some health systems do have navigators for other issues or to link people to primary care. I think it could be part of a program that would help provide case management and as well as link patients to care that don't have primary care physicians. So I think resources could potentially be pooled. I'm not sure that this is the kind of program that could or should be done in every emergency department because some emergency departments may not have large numbers of patients that need this screening or that don't have access to primary care. However, I think 
partnering with the community is going to be really, really important to continue this work. Larissa, what were some of the barriers that you faced to starting this program? I think some of the barriers were expected. You know, people were concerned about notifying patients. Uh, People were concerned this was going to increase workflow for nurses and physicians. That's why we decided we were only going to do it for patients that were already getting blood labs or that had STD tests being ordered, um, in which case, you know, it really should be standard of care to send for syphilis and HIV. So I think that those barriers were expected. I personally was a little bit surprised that while people were supportive, I think there's still a tremendous um, lack of comfort with doing these types of tests in the emergency department. And, you know, what is the role of emergency medicine in being a safety net hospital? And does that extend to screening? You know, is screening really something that needs to be done as part of the emergency care visit? You know, it doesn't necessarily impact their immediate visit, but it may impact, you know, these patients' trajectory in terms of coming back to the emergency department, their quality of life, their treatment. So I think we're having a paradigm shift. We're really thinking more about emergency medicine as, you know, more comprehensive and doing things, you know, outside the scope of what we were really trained to do. But because there is a need, and I think emergency physicians are very good at innovation and finding ways to take care of their patients. You know, we still struggle a little bit sometimes with how do we pay for the tests? Uh, What if a patient's billed? What about the handful of patients that may not be notified for various reasons? So I think we're still working through some of the kinks, but I think it's been such an important program, has had such a big impact on patients that similar to medication-assisted treatment, I think it is something that is in the wheelhouse of emergency medicine. Has this changed your practice in any way, Larissa? Were you screening already? Has this changed the way that you approach your patients? Prior to the program, I would have patients come and ask if they could get this testing. And, you know, we would send them to public health, the county clinic to get their STD tests. And I would periodically screen patients that I had a clinical suspicion for these illnesses. And then I would follow up on the results myself. And I can say that that's pretty onerous. This has really allowed me to do a lot more screening, and also it's been very rewarding to have patients come in and ask about this testing. I think this is really an important service we're providing for the community and another venue where patients can come in. And I think the fact that we had these rates here in Sacramento, we were not expecting it. I think there are pockets probably all over the country where people think that this is not an issue, but we really haven't haven't delved into it. So I think this is a great example of how public health screening can be done. Emergency medicine scope is expanding, and we need to figure out ways to do these things better. I really appreciate Larissa going over this. Sarah, how do you approach these patients? What are your thoughts on screening? Well, so the CDC has recommended screening in the ED for a long time, but that is really challenging. So in the past, I have mainly tested only when I had a high suspicion or if it was clinically relevant. So for example, a super sick patient where a diagnosis of HIV would change the kinds of infections we'd be considering and treating for. But those kinds of patients, they're usually being admitted and they have a team that can follow up on that testing. As Larissa mentioned, it's really tough to screen a patient who's being discharged from the ED because the results don't come back for a few days and I don't have a good way to follow up. In fact, I have patients I did screen and discharge who we then couldn't get in touch with about a positive result, which is super frustrating. So I definitely wasn't screening widely before this. Oh, geez, that's super stressful following up on the labs. You know, I work predominantly with children, so HIV, hepatitis C, syphilis screening has not been a huge part of my practice. It's not something I thought much about before we started this project. 
So to our listeners, whether you think all this effort is worth it for the sake of public health, the greater good, or for that individual patient, listen to what our patient said about what screening programs did for him. Now, I think it's a great idea because for me, look, man, it's like if I wouldn't have came in with that sickness, I never thought I had the virus. So it's good that they caught it earlier because just think if I've never, you know, got the test done, I'd be getting a lot more sicker as the months go by. And maybe I wouldn't have never been able to make it back from that, you know. So I think screening is a great thing. It's good to know what you have to deal with. I'm glad I took the test and that was only like two months ago, man. It's like, and I'm, I'm in a better place now. I found out early and, uh, and I'm dealing with it. I'm almost undetectable now. So, you know, this, this thing works, you know, it's like, I'm a product of the eighties. So I, I thought once you get it, you're dead, there's no comeback. And really this is like hope. Pulse check. 1.1 million people aged 13 and older have HIV in the United States, including an estimated 14% who don't know they are infected. Recommendations are to test annually for HIV in adults, but this is not happening. So some EDs across the United States and the world have taken on the screening role. We did at UC Davis, and we identified 0.7% of our patients had HIV, and 33 out of 1,000 patients screened had a new diagnosis or were not linked in with care. Screening facilitates linkage to care and gives patients, like the one in our story, hope for a new life. Even if primary care providers are incentivized to screen, our highest-risk patients may not even make it to them to be screened. It really comes down to the question of, what is our role in the healthcare system? That question is what so many of our podcasts really ask. But in an upcoming episode, we will literally ask that question. (laughs) That's right. I'm excited because this is going to be a debate-style podcast on our role in the healthcare system. Let's duke it out. So as part of that, we would love to hear from you. What do you see as the role of the emergency department in the broader health system? Let us know and follow along with us on social media at Impulse Podcast and pass the word along to your friends and colleagues. Thank you to our department for being a part of our community's safety net. And thanks to OM Audio Productions for always being there for us. And thank you to our listeners. We love learning with you. If you love learning with us, please go on to iTunes and leave a review. It helps us reach more people. See you next time.